And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, South West Utsira and North North East Utsira. Wind South West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, now, now. Hello and welcome to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM. At Eastcast we come together every month to look at the arts, the culture and the people of East London, but about issues that are much relevant, um, relevant much further afield. My name's Nia Sharpentier and I'm here with Pearl Wise, Alex Xavier and Daniel Manning. Yes, hello. This week we'll be speaking to Sarah Warren and Graham Bendel, two filmmakers who've screened film screening currently at the East End Film Festival, which is happening at the moment, and we'll be hearing from performance poet Chiron, who is part of the exciting poetry collective at the Roundhouse. We also have a piece called Home, made by Freddie Chick at Camden Community Radio, where he finds out about what people think when they hear the word home. We also have a short propaganda podcast, so you'll hear more about that later, and an interview with Taranj Kanari uh, about pub the public art installation and space making company which sounds really really interesting but to kick off today's show we have the minds behind standing on shoulders of giants a theater company that combines their love for classic plays with the energies of communities and they make a, a theater accessible to different audiences so welcome um jenny buckman which is the art, uh, artistic director and associate director tanya Esvido. hello 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 hi how are we doing we're very well thank you we have a very full studio tonight <laughs> Um, yeah, it's quite steamy in here. It is a little bit steamy. That's a polite way of putting it. <laughs> so uh, should I start uh, by asking you, Jenny, your background is um, is acting, so um, you... No, no, training acting. Training acting, yes, yeah, sorry. I my way out of a paper bag, but I teach it. I used to be the head of acting at RADA for many years but I left in 2007 to start Giants Theatre Company because I'm also a playwright and I do the... The play, the, the, I write the plays for Giants. And for BBC as well, you yes, also involved yes. in radio? Yes, lots and lots and lots of plays for BBC Radio 4 and World Service. Oh, we did love the plays on the World Service. <laughs> bring it back. Yes, bring it back bring indeed. It back. Could, you, could you tell us how, how it all happened, how you decided to, to move from, from teaching into creating this beautiful thing that is uh, theatre, uh, Giants? Well, I'm ever, I've been a Londoner all my life and a Hackney resident for the last 30-plus years. Um, and I've been going to the theatre since, you know, since I was a school kid. And it always amazed me, actually, to be completely honest, it slightly pisses me, well, no, it greatly pisses me off, that the audience are kind of the same. You get the same white, middle-class, more or less middle-aged audience. It is much better now. But it's always been the same sort of audiences and I've always been interested in creating theatre with a community that can be then professionally performed and taken back to the community. And that's how 
giants came about. And by taking a classic, we've done um, a play about Pandora, called Pandora. We've done a play about um, returning military from um, Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, which was based on the Odyssey. And with our latest play, Piece of Silk, um, we, we took A Thousand and One Nights, or Arabian Nights, which is an amazing story. Tanya will tell you more about it, about misogyny and violence um, and magic and sex, lots of sex. Um, and so we, we, because we wanted to write a, um, work with groups of people who are survivors of domestic violence, we worked with Savile Black Sisters... Um, down in Savile. And we Iranian and Kurdish women rights organisation. Yes. And Not Shut Up, which is a collective of ex-offenders that rehabilitate themselves through artistic forms. And how is it to work with these communities? Um, they were All three of them were very different experiences uh, because the, the way that Giants works is that we research the themes of our plays by working with communities, but we don't want to feel like we're taking out their stories mm. and just waving them goodbye. We want to make sure that we are giving them something back that is valuable to them other than then obviously telling them story, their stories on stage um, so with South Hall Black Sisters for example we did a street performance in the streets of South Hall they did we, they we, did we, yeah we, we wrote, wrote and you directed but yeah they, they, they actually performed, performed it. it and there were their words uh, that they developed with us and they wrote and they translated a lot of it into Punjabi and, and Hindu so yes. by the end of mm -hmm. it like nobody it was it was only about 30% in English and um, at the beginning of the rehearsals actually they only a couple of them wanted to perform. Everyone else was dead scared. scared. Yes. Um, and then by the end of it, they were so they were feeling so empowered by the fact that their stories could make a difference to the rest of the community that they just all took it on board and they just all performed. And on, on the streets outside Southern Town Hall. Yeah, this was for the um, End Violence and Conflict um, week, week in November. Week, yes, November 14th, yeah. It was an amazing experience. Mm, um, I'm curious, other than on the streets, obviously you're engaging with people... Who who possibly aren't used to seeing this kind of theatre? Are you getting the audiences that you you were saying earlier that you're kind of fed up of the same kind of audiences? Pandora, I think yes, that's a really definitely. Good example. Well, we, yes, because piece of silk. It has to be said. So so then the process is, as Daniel was saying, that um, for our own writing side and directing side, we. I, I, what I do is I sort of weave together the stories, and you know. Uh, my own stories as well, and then we invited um, Southern SBS, Southern Black Sisters, and Ecro, and Not Shut Up, to the reading. We, Tanya directed the reading of half of the play at the Bush Theatre, and it was jammed. And they all came to that and were very, very, very moved, which was wonderful because they recognised themselves in the material on stage. So we're now looking for a theatre for a full production and we very much hope that they will... Word of mouth will spread and yes, they will and feel like their stories are so represented that they will let other peoples of their community know. Exactly, because um, Pandora was the first play that we did back in 2009. No, nine, thank you. Or ten, I can't remember. Gosh. Anyway, um, and, and it was at the Arcola in, in Hackney. Yeah. And um, the... It, the community, particularly the, the, the women, women from um, third age. Um, University of the Third Age, so there were women in their 70s uh, 
they were represented not only in the stories, but um, we had um, a film of them, and they were blown up, huge images of themselves all around the theatre. And they were knocked out. They were absolutely thrilled. And the audience that came to the Arcola were people who'd never been to the theatre before. And that, so I would say that was a success. Mm. Definitely. So, um, without, what's the next step? What, what's next? Come, what's um, coming up to you? Over to Tanya. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so, after, so we have the, the reading at the Bush Theatre in May, quite recently, and we are now liaising with different venues because we want to make sure that whatever venue we go to, we keep the workshop element of um, our performances so that we don't just leave it to rest. We actually continue incorporating the elements of storytelling and how to make an impact in your community by making your stories heard. So we want to make sure that we find the absolute venue that has that engagement side to it that we can mm. also be a part of very strongly. Um, so that is the next for Piece of Silk is is hopefully for pro- production in early 2016 is what we're looking at. Great. And some of the loveliest theatres in London. I mean, are we allowed to mention the theatres, some of the theatres that are looking or should we not? <laughs> No, we shouldn't. No, we shouldn't. We shouldn't. Sorry. All right, we'll keep keep silent for now. (laughs) Yes, and um, about the young actors that you also um, work with. So the play, the 1001 Nights I went to back in January, Mm -hmm. you work with with very young actors and they rehearse on the same day. I I think that's that's what we had talked on today, wasn't it, Tanya? Yes. Um, So so for that, that was uh, part of the work we did with Not Shut Up, which was the collective of XFN. Um, and so we worked with two actors, trained drama school trained actors, and then we worked with a spoken word artist that had um, a background with NSU. Um, and the the whole goal of that day was to explore how storytelling could be achieved in a one day of intense rehearsal. We wandered around the streets of Southwark. We just, like, took extras for, from A Thousand and One Nights. And, and the, the idea behind it was to have um, two sets of artists from completely different backgrounds exploring the same material mm-hmm. and how storytelling can be have the same impact no matter what way you use to convey it. Yes, because the theme was um, in line with uh, A Thousand and One Nights that storytelling is a matter of life or death because, as you know, the setup of A Thousand and One Nights is that Scheherazade tells Mm -hmm. stories for A Thousand and One Nights in order to save Mm -hmm. her and her sister's life and actually to save all womankind. Um, uh, so, So that was our theme and that is what we we did with with the young actors and mm-hmm. uh, the spoken word artists. I think, and, and, and it was because of that. I was just going to say because of that. The one of the main characters in the play that I wrote is a spoken word, sort of. Yes. You believe it, me writing spoken word, but it's sort of. Nearly spoken word. <laughs> Come and see it for yourself. Okay. Um, if anyone wants to know more about uh, Giants, where you should go they... to com, or you can follow us on Twitter at Giants underscore theatre or you can email us at info at com, and I will pick up all of these. Because <laughs> she's good like that. <laughs> You're going to regret saying that. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. It's, it's been, such a um, pleasure. It's been really interesting us. talking to you. Um, so next up we have um, 
a sound piece from an event called Propaganda um, that takes a pop at an issue floating around popular culture and cu- current conversations without perhaps uh, being properly considered. So in this podcast, uh, we ask the question, could typing utopias lead to the secretarial pool of the future? Exit freedom of thought. The time is not yet. Let us pray that it never happens. Can't we agree that capitalism is an economic system, a system for the production and distribution of things we need and want? If you treat her right, she might make you a darn good employee. That's the answer. Is it money or is it magic? It defies any code of morality. Let me be clear. Programming is the key to the future. What are we all going to do? Are we all just going to be sitting in, like, windowless cubicles coding Madden 3000? stenographers and typists must acquire superior usable typing skills. Coding is fundamentally a very creative thing. There is absolutely no danger of seeing the world or the future with millions and millions of developers uh, doing uh, simple, menial jobs uh, at the same time. Learning to code is something that everyone should do, but being a coder is not necessarily the most important skill of the myriad that we need to learn at the moment. Critical thinking and particularly emotional intelligence were perhaps as or more important. My name is Evgeny and I'm a founder of Makers Academy. In the future, everyone should uh, learn to code as because as Steve Jobs said, it teaches you how to think. My name is Debbie Evans. I'm the founder of Libertine, a content platform for smart women. And we've been thinking about the ideas in today's propaganda a lot um, in our last theme of intimacy and empathy. Coding has a bit of an image problem in that it's not always, often but not always. A guy sitting in front of a computer and typing uh, code for 10 hours a day. Usually white guys sat in a dark basement room and not interacting with the outside world. In reality, it's nothing like this. It may seem that coding is about creating a, an unfair sort of power structure or it's, or it's creating this kind of the other way around, a typing pool. It's actually flattening out all the hierarchies. Who are we actually learning these skills for and for creating and coding? Do we feel that there is a danger that we're kind of creating something for someone else? What if it's actually empowering us by allowing us to choose not to be consumers? We are taking part in an assembly line, but uh, the assembly line at the moment pays very well, so it's very difficult to argue with that. It's not so much a matter of extolling coding's virtues, it just becomes a matter of why not? This is a question as to whether you teach people how the world is wired. Isn't coding just like another language today? And if I go on holiday to Morocco, I don't necessarily need to learn Arabic, I can just get a translator. So if I have a fantastic idea like Tinder, I could just employ a coder to then code my idea and make a lot of money out of it. If you're working in a different language that you don't know and you're paying a translator to do something for you, you have no way of checking that they have done what you wanted them to do. So if you're dealing in contracts um, in Arabic and someone says, this is what I've put in the contract and you don't speak Arabic, you're completely at their mercy. A lot of people don't even know how to learn. Just a basic, a basic level, like people just don't know how to learn. It's not right or wrong, I'm not disrespecting anybody. You can create an environment which will kind of mold people in that learning kind of mindset. What works is teaching them how to learn, giving them a challenge and then supporting them on their journey, giving them feedback on how they are doing, lots and lots of feedback. Creating an environment in which they are going to learn how to code instead of an environment in which someone else is going to teach them.
The debate isn't around whether people should code, it's around screen absorption. That's what people are frightened about. They're frightened that, you know, every image of a coder is them sitting there with headphones. It's a bad image that we actually have to explode. It's not whether people should code, it's how we teach our children to break away from this behavior that I think people are actually frightened of. Pushing the parameters of the digital space will ultimately allow humans and society to further themselves and achieve their potential, maybe in a shorter space of time. As code and learning to code becomes more mainstream, more the norm, we'll see different groups of people with different personality traits and types bring more of a balance to that scene, which will, you know, which would actually hopefully give us more of a perspective. You're always pushing the boundary. You're always building something which doesn't exist before. And this makes coding so exciting and so attractive. One thing that uh, I learned in today's debate is that uh, uh, many people who don't have first-hand experience of coding uh, don't always appreciate this point. The next propaganda, we're eager for the, to be a kind of a narrative between this session and the next. So we're kind of putting out to you guys like what what you'd like to be discussed next. Something that occurs to me is that working to your own agenda, which is something I'm really big on, like whatever you're doing. And um, so to kind of flip that around and pop it. Um, so you could have a topic around thinking for yourself is overrated. Okay, I like it. Yeah. And the next propaganda debate will be on in September, so more of that uh, to come. Now, we are very lucky to be joined in the studio by not one but two filmmakers uh, whose films are both being screened at the East End Film Festival, which is on at the moment. Sarah Warren and Paul Bennon are here to talk to us about the film MLE and Graham Bendall about his film, which is called Derailed Sense, a film about Vic Goddard and Subway Sect. So we'll talk to Sarah Warren and uh, Paul Bennon first, but before we ask lots of questions, let's introduce the film MLE with this short trailer. Julie Robert. Oh, well, that's kind of funny. Tell me about yourself. Uh, well, I just got cast in this feature, Vampire Mermaid. Stop. Stephanie, come on in. Oh, it's Julie, but... Julie, Stephanie, we're all fake. Follow. God, I mean, that's not good enough for brunettes. Our daughter's favorite. Vampire mermaids go to heaven. Interior kitchen night. It's over. That's it, just like that. Funding's being cut. Oh. Get the hell out of here! Go! Camilla, we are going to have to teach English. <sighs> I'm not doing that. Oh. Hello. My boyfriend and I would actually like to talk to you about a possible job opportunity. Damn. So... My daughter, Joy, she doesn't call anymore except for money and, well... You guys want me to be your spy? Yeah. Okay, I'm in. I'm a spy now. <gasps> spy pink. That's awesome. I'm looking for Joy. No, this isn't a paint car. Can you want me to wear the wrong masks? Uh, I'm just trying to nail down the final hundred grand, you idiot. Oh no! Was that a human? One, two, three. 
have a boyfriend? No. Why? Because people have single times. No. Okay, well, I would have if there was time and only if the guy isn't selfish. Julie is a star. I messed up, Dad. Looks like someone has been spying on us. I know there's a cult after me. You're not anywhere this time! Give us the pen! I don't have the pen! Could I get in trouble? Yes, but that's why you have a spy name. Spy name. I'm not a complete freak. D definitely not full freak. Emily? M-L-E. You got a money issue, sister. We got to sort it out. Well, you got to sort it out, and I got to spy for money. So a little snippet there from the film MLE. Sarah, you direct, uh, you wrote it, and you star in the film, and Paul, you're the producer. Hello. How did this story come about? <laughs> Thanks for having us, first of all. It's nice hearing that audio trailer, although there was a few uh, bad words left yeah, out of there. <laughs> I asked for the clean version. I know, I know. <laughs> it's incredible hearing that trailer or hearing the film without loads and loads of swearing in it, which is, so that, that's a thing. I was going to white knuckle ride listening to that. Um, so how did it come about? Yeah, I did write, direct, and star in it, which sounds like a giant ego trip, but I'd also like to state that there's 60, that's a six and then a zero, other British cast in it, so we're really proud to have a very large cast and crew, mainly from the East End and from Hackney, although I know I have a very Canadian-sounding voice, but <laughs> Hackney girl through and through. <laughs> and is this based on a true story? I know, what is that scepticism? It only comes from a <laughs> British accent. Yes, it's a true story, um, up until the climactic scene to the end, so there's maybe five minutes of it that's not true. At the same time, don't let the truth get in the way of telling a good story, so of course there's, um, it's kind of upped in that way. And now my producer says... Yes, of course. Yeah, as, as a producer, let me just say, it's a complete work of fiction. None of that happened. <laughs> I'd be very, very clear about that. I was going to say, a true story, really? Like... Yeah, word for more word in most cases. And I always say to people, if you want to come for a beer afterwards, we'll tell you exactly who's who, and it would possibly blow your mind. But anyway, yeah. So some very strange things happening in East London that we and, don't know and about, obviously. women in the industry, which, which I'm sure you guys know all about it. It's a, it's a sad truth, but I, I like to satirize it because then it makes it more palatable. So, yeah, it's the John Stewart in me. What can I say? <laughs> and um, so it was shot in East London. Yes, absolutely. So we shot in 38 locations around Hackney and uh, East London. So thank God it got into the festival, you know. Yeah, that would have been a bit disappointing. I yeah. actually wrote, I think I was present. Um, I've been, obviously I live in East London. I've been cycling around. And like every time I tried to get somewhere, there was a film crew. And it's like, what are they doing? I'm Who are these that. people? <laughs> yeah. Was that us? So I, I, it must have been. No, I we presume. had one small thrifty man. It probably wasn't us. He probably <laughs> passed us right by. <laughs> I actually find that exciting, just finding out who, like, you know, a few months after, aha, that was the film that was... <laughs> it was you. Yeah, yeah. My you. heart always jumps when I see those the location signs in the trucks, which is a great sign, having been in the industry for over 10 years. But yeah, a little heart leap there. So this is your debut? Debut feature, yeah. I made a student feature um, under the mentorship of Atta Magoyan back in Canada at University of Toronto, but this is my debut proper feature as it were mm -hmm. yeah. and what does it mean to be part of something like the east end film festival 
It means a great deal to us. Uh, this is the first time I'll say it, but my f- my student feature was rejected from there. Oh, <gasps> I know. And so I was like, I'm in now, guys. Um, so it, it means a lot to us. Not not because of that, but it means a lot because it's a huge fest. I mean, the opening night they're calling it the Tribeca of the UK, and it completely is, and it's completely earned that title. So we're thrilled. We debuted at the BFI um, um, with the Loco, the London Comedy Film Festival, and we've been at five fests since. But been really waiting for this one. A big, solid, proper fest right in our home on a street where we shot the film. It's really magic. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the East End Festival kind of grow up over the years, and right now it's it's such a phenomenal festival. It sort of, it, you know, in some ways is more culturally important, culturally resonant than London Film Festival. There. Sorry, guys. It's down at the BFI, I said it. <laughs> and now all our future <laughs> films are screwed. You're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Uh-oh. Um, Paul, have you produced a feature before? Have you been in- involved in this way? So I've produced pretty... Before this, I've, I've produced pretty much everything, um, literally from Doctor Who video games to, to radio, actually, as well, uh, via TV. But this is the first feature that I've done. And, uh, oh, my God, it's... <laughs> Feature filmmaking is really hard. It's very, very hard. Well, can we get any examples? And, and I have to say that Paul has his six or so real BAFTAs, but I always get the little chocolate ones that he comes home with that's in the goodie, in the goodie bag. I'm like, someday, these will be the real Surely it ones. can't be harder than acting, directing, and uh, right. Well, don't forget that Sarah also co-produced it. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm not... Thing is that actually, the funny thing is that this word producer means lots and lots of different things mm. in, in film. There's lots of different kinds of producer, from the person that effectively just drums up the money to, to someone that's uh, around with a, a large piece of two by four smacking the crap out of people. Um, so there's lots of different Which kinds, is. lots of different kinds of producer, and so um, yeah, so it's kind of worked very well between me and Sarah because. I did a different kind of enforcing in the background and, and Sarah did a different, a different kind of uh, production as Yeah, well. you were asking for an example of difficulty. I think we'll, we'll keep it in the light Emily sphere, which is to say keep it comedic. But I'm we did... avoid yeah. the question. It's yeah, but we did, we did, you know, all of those don't do it things. You know, so we broke all the rules. It's like, don't shoot a film with your partner. Oops. Don't shoot a film in your house for six weeks. Oops. You know, don't shoot with, you know, the, the co-lead and your mom living upstairs. Oops. You know, so it's all <laughs> that wonderful stuff that goes into debut feature um, yeah that's, that's what makes the best moments sometimes isn't it yeah the proximity oh, behind the scenes would yeah. have been yeah. <laughs> something else is that something that you might be releasing to <laughs> the <laughs> internet well, I think we've done enough true stories to kind of keep people <laughs> interested and sceptical to yeah, last but again if you do come so it's on uh, the London at the East End Film Festival on Sat- uh, Saturday so if you do come at 9 o'clock at Genesis so if you do come along afterwards and get us a bit drunk then I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll get those more, we'll get those stories this film was funded through Kickstarter, I believe. Yeah. So how was that? I mean, there's more and more films being funded in this way, like independent yeah. films. It seems to be like the the way to do it now because there mm. isn't that much money around. How, what was that like? We're incredibly um, proud that it's Kickstarter financed. So, and we were right in the middle of that Veronica Mars, um, you know, Zach Braff 
time. And so, and, and we even said in one of our videos, Zach, do you think you could give us a little bit of that million that you're raising? So we, I, I moved to the UK, and two months later I decided to do this project because I thought it's that credibility catch-22 of how do you get the credibility, make a film. How do you make a film and get the credibility? And I sure. just thought, make the film. So I was really honored to have 200 backers. Over 100 of those were complete strangers. You got someone from Japan, Norway, and all around the States. People are sending us hard drives, which is great because we shot in 4K. Um, but it, it was a complete um, honor that I just moved here and to have British backing and global backing, over 200 backers. And our goal was 17,000. We raised over 21,000. I mean, these are tiny, tiny numbers. This is a short film budget. I mean, most of my mates who shoot for um, short films are 50K, but that was half of our budget. And then we met the rest with private finance. But it was, you know, we treated the Kickstarter like a film in itself because we wanted to make a high-quality film, um, you know, and we wanted to get the right incentives. We spent a month as doing that as a full-time job. I think you have to. It does. Yeah. It has to become a full time. And especially as a filmmaker, cause if you're guys in a band and you're going, oh, come and listen to my music, and you play some amazing song, that's great. But we are showing a film to show that we can make a, an even better film. So I think you have to have the voice of that. It can't be poorly lit. You know, you have to have good acting, good storytelling, right from that. So and that's your first fan base. So there's 200 people right there who believe in you. Really looking forward to seeing this on Saturday. I think I, I'm, yeah. I'm going to go to the Genesis, oh, and yeah. I want to get those those stories. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a little beer incentive doesn't hurt. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Talking about your I film. I only have one DVD, sorry. Not four. There's four striking ladies in front of me. It's all right, we'll share. We're generous like that. So um, now, Graham, your film Derailed Sense, a film about Vic Goddard and Subway Sect, is about the legendary punk, uh, punk band Subway Sect and their frontman, Vic Goddard. It's premiering at the East End Film Festival. Um, so by way of introduction, let's play a snippet of a Subway Sect track that you kindly chose for us. Let's have that. <laughs> So that was a bit of a Vic Goddard that you heard there. Um, so, Graham, why <laughs> is my first question. Why this documentary? Um, basically, um, I'd, the first documentary I made 
was about Billy Childish, and uh, he was a kind of cult character. And um, I, was, I was thinking about something I'd like to follow up the Billy Childish thing with, and a Subway Sets were the only band that really fascinated me. I mean, there's loads of bands like, um, you know, a lot of people know Joy Division, a lot of people know Wire, and all those kind of people. Obviously, the Pistols and the Clash. But Subway Sex are one of those bands that kind of, you know, drop through the net. And um, people, a lot of people who, who like a lot of good music just don't know about them. And so I kind of wanted to do something that would, t- you know, tell people about this really great band that they've missed. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't really pay the wage. You know, it doesn't give you a lot of money because you haven't got that much of an audience already. You know, like with the Amy Winehouse film. You've got, you know, a massive, massive fan base. And he's kind of, you know, Vic Goddard's quite a niche thing. Um, but, you know, he's got a hardcore following. But you've got some quite influential people to feature in the film, like Urban Welsh, people like that. Um, so there's obviously, like, a fan base there of, of people who, ha- who have got fans themselves. So perhaps that could have created more of an audience? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. He's kind of an, an artist's artist. I right. mean, Lots of people, uh, I mean, there's so many people who just uh, love and respect him. And, uh, yeah, like in, in the film, you know, I've got Bobby, uh, Bobby Gillespie from Primal Scream. And, uh, you know, the, there's the, the Jesus and Mary Chain. I mean, Bobby Gillespie was in the Jesus and Mary Chain. But um, all the Jesus and Mary Chain, they, they really sort of are mad about him. And, uh, you know, there's so many bands like Orange Juice, Edwin Collins, the pop group. Uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of you know, Viv Albertine from the Slits. Well, she sort of played with them back in the day, but um, you know, the, also we got the writer Jonathan Coe, who's a less obvious kind of person, who's into Vic Goddard, and and that was kind of quite a nice thing to get him in the film. But yeah, you're you're right. Um, a lot of these people they do have bigger audiences, and and they're very you know they're trying to sort of plug it as well and tell their fans on Twitter about the film so and you actually i mean the film was finished quite a while ago why has it taken so long to be shown like <laughs> i look for trailers there's nothing it's all very secretive yeah um <laughs> that's the million dollar question uh it was finished in 2012 and basically the barbican and raindance film festival wanted to show it raindance film festival actually put it in their festival and it got pulled and for the life of me, I can't really explain what the reasons were, but let's just say creative differences. OK. Um, <laughs> I mean, the version that, that was going to appear in the Rain Arts Film Festival is not much different from the one that's going to appear on Friday at the Hackney Picture House. Um, yeah, it's really... I mean, it's very hard to explain to people why. And, uh, you know, a lot, you know the, the handful of people who've seen it already can't really kind of understand why it was pulled but you know it's, uh, <laughs> this is what happens sometimes when you make a, a film about an idiosyncratic um, kind of person. Do you think he would have become such a cult figure if he hadn't become a postman? Yes. Yeah I mean the, the postman thing just adds a bit of kind of interest to the story but yeah without that that kind of quirky sort of Thing to the to the story. I mean, he he would have been, yeah, very uh, you know, very sort of interesting, very fascinating, and very influential. Um, I mean, God, at the East End Film Festival when they were 
um, you know, writing about the film or, you know, talking about the film. They didn't even mention the fact he was a postman. Right. Um, but, but the fact he's a postman does feature quite heavily in, in, the, in the film. Uh, you know. I guess it kind of goes with his anarchy punk ethos that, you know, like... I'm not interested. Like I will do my thing, whatever. You know, I'm, I'm not going to follow this fame and fortune uh, path. I'm just going to carry on and join the working classes and be a postman and, and fuck yeah, everyone. You well, know, I don't think he's got that much of an anarchic ethos or anything. But he does love being a postman. He's really into it. Oh, right, he, it's just lo- the, the love he, of letters. I think he prefers being a postman <laughs> to being a sort of rock star. Right, it's not quite a rock star, but you know. Um, or so he says sometimes, but uh, he, he, he loves the music. And uh, he's a fantastic songwriter. He's, he, the songs he's, he's done are, are absolutely amazing. He, he's got such a big back catalogue of stuff. And, you know, if, if you were to listen to all, the, all these tracks, if I was to play all the tracks, and, you know, a lot of them appear in the film, you'd be like, God, this guy should be so famous. And, and sometimes I think... Maybe he kind of sabotages himself a bit. Maybe he doesn't want to be famous, mm. which is true with a few of these kind of cult characters. I mean, you mentioned the Amy Winehouse film, and <laughs> from seeing that, you can kind of understand why someone might not want to be famous because it can be quite unbearable. Yes, yes, of course. There's um, all those sort of uh, dangers of fame, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. It, yeah, absolutely. I haven't seen the I haven't seen the Amy Winehouse film, but uh, I, I know pretty much the story. Well, yeah. we know how it ends anyway. Um, are you still as much a fan as you were when you started the documentary process? Um, it's difficult because because of the whole thing when it was held back for three years. You know, I, I kind of was quite angry, and I I hadn't I wasn't able to listen to his music. wasn't able, I didn't go to any gigs or anything like that. And it's only now that it's kind of, you know, it's about to premiere that um, I'm, I can listen to the music again. But this, these things do happen. And, um, but, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change, change... I mean, I'm so glad that I made a film about him and I'm really proud of it, but it was a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> it was a bit... <laughs> yeah, difficult, difficult character, I imagine, to work with. Well, no, it's really weird because... The whole filming, he, he, we got on like a house on fire and he was so mellow and he was so easygoing that I actually was scared that um, there was no tension. And I thought, it's, it's, we were getting on too well. You're, in the film, you're not going to see any tension between us, like maybe with the Billy Childish thing. And all I'll say is careful for what you wish for because that all changed. And, and it's, it's, very, it's very difficult to kind of explain what happened. But... Um, <laughs> it would take a long time to exp- it's a long story but I, you know but the the important thing is that uh we agreed on things we made a few compromises a few cuts were made and it's going to be seen and when is it going to be seen it's going to be seen on friday at 7 p.m 10th of july at hackney picture house be there be square i can't <laughs> believe i've said that <laughs> <laughs> and do you have to know about Vic Goddard, do you have to be a fan to enjoy this film? Can complete novices oh, yeah, yeah. go and I, discover? Yeah, I actually made the film... Uh, I mean, I made, made the film thinking about the Subway Set fans, but I actually made it for people who don't know him because I wanted to tell people about him. And, in, you know, in some ways, it's a film about other things other than music. 
um, you know, sort of friendship and, you know, because he started the band with, you know, school buddies and everything. And it's about, you know, it's about a film about persona. You know, and it, you can just enjoy the film if you're into... Um, you know, you're you're into kind of uh, you know bands and and stuff, and it's yeah, it's a story about you know maybe someone who could have made it big. I mean, he was managed by the Clash manager Bernie Rhodes, and uh, you know, some of the films about that and about how he obviously turned his attentions to the Clash, and he had his hands full with that, and he kind of neglected the Subway Sector, who his other band that he managed. He also managed the specials and Dexys Midnight Runners as well. And they became very big. Um, but yeah, and, and, but arguably, you know, Vic Goddard, he's got s- songs that are better than, you know, all those bands. He's, he's an incredible songwriter. Well, it's definitely made me want to hear more and see this film because uh, it's intriguing to see this character that I've heard about but never really kind of gone deeply into the the backstory so um, i'm very interested in that thank you so much thank you graham for coming and talking to us about it danielle i think it's over to you so um, i'm really pleased to welcome chiron who is a performance poet hello chiron currently working with the roundhouse collective of poets Um, and i've been following you guys over the past few weeks i know that you're a very talented bunch so you're going to be for performing two poems about city life. Yes, um, yeah, part of the Roundhouse Poetry Collective. We've qu- kind of gave ourselves an identity now, so we've got a name called Spare the Poets. And yeah, I'll go into the first poem. Um, yeah. Take it away. Concrete creates a framework for the city. Grey skies, fumes, atmosphere. Everything seems normal, mundane, possibly simplistic. But if you were to stop at any moment, and pick anyone or anything within this world, you would find a story. A story with depth, authenticity, meaning. But how often do we stop in the rush of the hours? The concrete swallows us. Our perception becomes as grey as our reality. And it's 5.30. In London, Manchester, Birmingham, Bristol, Sao Paulo, Accra, New York. It's 2010. The 1990s. The 1960s. Who built this blueprint for city life? Thank you. So that that's the first piece. Um, the second piece is basically it explores the same themes as the first piece, but it's more when I perform it, I kind of want it to get across to the audience how disconnected we are. So it's sort of after I do the poem and before I do the poem I actually do something different every single time to sort of break down those boundaries so one performance I did like a roly-poly which probably sounds really weird and <laughs> just stage, yeah on the stage I just okay. got up did a roly-poly another one I did a freestyle another one I ran around and high-fived everyone just to like just to break down those to boundaries up a bit. yeah so here it is I've had enough of these social boundaries that keep us behind locked doors shielded by false concepts of social norms For years I was told not to speak to other people, even though you are meant to be my equal. The lack of conversation between people makes me feel stranger. What if I meet someone beautiful today? What if my self-expression helps change the path of someone's day? I want to know how different the world can be. You ever seen someone in need and just walk by? Yeah, I've done the same. We choose to ignore someone's pain just because we don't know their name, but if we saw our favourite celebrity, would we do the same? Why don't we celebrate each other? Why aren't public spaces a chance to connect with one another? 
supposedly we are more connected than ever with more ways to communicate than ever before with more ways to express ourselves than ever before yet we find it so hard to listen social networks are now used for gratification if you don't get a like or reply you're happy with your status we could be at home with no drive but still be worried about status a loss of expression of self why do we need social networks to express ourselves what happened to conversations in the street you was once a stranger he was once a stranger we were once strangers thank you thank you that's brilliant stuff thank you so much um so we heard in one of our pieces earlier about how people are kind of forgetting to connect with each other mm. because of this obsession we have with screens and technology mm. and I feel like that kind of relates to some of the themes you bring up in those poems you just um, performed for us. How does yeah. that relate to your work? Um, I feel like it relates strongly to my work because the main aim of my work is to break down boundaries and to talk about things that maybe we often ignore. And, um, yeah, I just want to get across to the audience and to the people listening that, you know, we don't have to live with these boundaries. You know, there, there was, I mean, when, we, when I go up north, for instance, um, people just talk to you randomly but here in London, it's like everyone's so disconnected. And even today, I was at the South Bank. I was at this exhibition on migration, the movement of people. And I was writing a poem and I sort of thought about my history and how I don't really know, like, what my grandparents went through and the journeys that they went through. So I was looking for people just to talk to and just to ask, like, pub members of the public, um, do you know about your story? And there were so many people on phones and with their earphones in. And instantly when you see that, you, you know that you, you can't talk to that person because that person is in their own little bubble. And, um, I mean, it, it is something that is off-putting, but, I mean, I don't know how to tackle it. It's, it's something that I think everyone does it. I do it myself, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so you're telling us about how you like to kind of interact with your audiences, mm. and that's so the performance aspect of it is a really big part of kind of your message almost. Yeah. So with performance poetry at the moment, um, do you feel like it's in some sort of renaissance almost? Because we have artists like Kate Tempest and Sully Brakes that are getting very popular. I would say definitely it's something that's being more recognised. Mm. When I speak to people about spoken word, they'll know one or two artists. Sully Brakes and Kate Tempest maybe. Definitely one or two, <laughs> like those, like, artists that you know promote themselves well online mm -hmm. and um i feel like it's also about the confidence in in spoken word as an artist yourself because i've taken spoken word into places and into organizations that um haven't really used spoken word that much and i feel that because it's making that sort of renaissance it's given those artists that are on the scene the confidence to sort of um just push boundaries and to push their work more okay um so I know that uh, the Poetry Collective at the Roundhouse, Spare the Poets, you've, yeah. you're now called, you're very busy over the summer. I've yes, been hearing lots of interesting things. What are you up to? So we're performing at Camden Lock Live on Friday. Um, that's at 4pm. Um, we're also performing at Lovebox, which is wow. quite a big festival. Best of all. And camp festival as well. And how many of you are there in the collective? So there's quite a lot of us. There's like 14 members, 14, 15 members. So yeah, we're quite large. So when we perform, sometimes it's not all of us. Okay, but we're not I, all doing roly polies on the stage. Nah, that would not work. <laughs> Just you. Okay. Thank you so much for coming in, Kyron. You're welcome. You're listening to East Coast Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks, Danielle. Um, so we're gonna. 
change topics completely, but that's East Car Show. That's what we do. Um, so I talked to uh, Taranj Kansari uh, from the Architectural and Art Practice Public Works, and they're based in Hackneywick. Uh, about the work they do on the Olympic site, but also in Manchester. I think what's really important is that really as kind of creative people, whether it's artists, whether it's architects, whether it's designers, I don't really care. We really start to kind of look at what the city needs and in this kind of wave of speed of privatisation, how can we claim publicness? My name is Taranj Kansari and I am uh, from Public Works. Public Works started as an art and architecture collective around participatory art. It has a very social angle and uh, I suppose in the last five years, although we work within the cultural sector, it's kind of probably becoming much more, in a sense, slightly activist. People call us polite activists, maybe. <laughs> a lot of uh, what we did were mobile structures uh, and temporary structures which set up certain situations or set up uh, residency spaces for us to operate within the city very much embedded within the area or the locality where we're working. These structures are always very quick, quite cheap, but eye-catching so that they also kind of start to attract the attention of locals to come and engage with us. So you're based in Hackney Wick. Yes. Obviously, that's quite an interesting yeah. area to be working out of. How has that inspired what you do? Do you work in Hackney Wick yeah. um, with what's going on around? Yeah, I mean, my partner, Andreas, he's been doing a project uh, which is called Rurban Wick, which has been very much embedded within Hackney Wick, looking at the kind of change that's happening after the Olympics, especially uh, around ideas of resilience and common ground. Uh, and we've been doing those uh, conversations and discussions called the WIC sessions, which have uh, really brought those issues to the public. Uh, we now have a site on the Olympic site, which is going to be this reuse and recycling centre. It really becomes a place now where a lot of what we've been doing, quite mobile and temporarily, around Hackneywick will kind of start to have a home. There'll probably be an archive. So you deal with quite serious stuff, but what I notice about what you do and what I, I really enjoy is that it's got a lot of humour and it's quite fun. Can you um, describe a few of your... Obviously, this is radio, so people <laughs> can't see like images yeah. of the projects, but just a few examples of, of things that you've done to kind of ask some questions and get yeah. people talking... Yeah, I mean, I think usually our, our structures are quite performative. For example, we did a, um, a structure called Canal Club uh, in Liverpool, which was a shed on a kind of floating platform with stars hanging from it and a little kind of greenhouse. And they, they are always slightly absurd. And, and we had another truck on Watford High Street, which was an old 1970s Bedford truck, with an inflatable house, um, you know, transparent 
house and a shed which was on top of a tower and it had different films and it had fruits which was the work of uh, Krzysztof Brioski, an artist. Very, very early on, this is a very old project, but we had the mobile porch which was under the Westway um, which kind of became a platform or it could become a UFO or it could become a, a bar or it would transform and turn on its head. They always have a very playful angle to them or, or even interventions you know whether we write or draw really really big on pictures with football pitch paint <laughs> or tape massive areas up as a, as a big drawing so yeah they are always fun which is probably part of where we came from as, a, as an art practice or still are how do the, the how do the public react? Well, I think I think it's intrigue usually. So people usually come up and ask us what it is and what is it about and what is it doing and they do become like conversation pieces. They don't have to be purposeful. They become hangout spaces. So a lot of the time when we're there over a long period of time, you do get regulars, you know, after a while. Once you've got the permission to be there, you could do whatever you want on, on our platform in a way. You know, you can strip naked if you want, you know. It's, so it, it's kind of quite interesting that it kind of becomes a secondary public space, these kind of structures. And I know that something quite important to you is this idea of legacy. So it's all very well going yeah. into a space yeah. and kind of creating these conversations and yeah. getting things moving and, and, you know, it's quite fun and exciting. But then what happens? Yeah, so, so that's, that is really something which, after kind of years of participatory artist commissions, we kind of kept finding out that, you know, by the time we'd got somewhere... And we were interested in the bigger picture. We, we would never promise anything, but in a way you felt like you've understood so much about a place, and now what? You've just understood it. So I think that that's something we're now really looking at, um, and we're really kind of interested in very diverse communities, and this kind of idea of what do you have in common, or, or what, what common ground you have what is an urban common is something which is now really running through the practice both in terms of what we're doing in Hackney Wick what I'm doing in Manchester and the Roman Road so these are the three long-term big projects so the Roman Road one we uh, are in collaboration with the CAS we have secured a site on the Roman Road where we're going to do a little micro town hall where we're going to from there really start to establish what those common grounds potentially can be in that in that neighborhood in that area but ultimately what is the role of shops within the public realm of the high street and then what happens to the housing above it so we're just exploring i have absolutely no answers but it's just a three-year kind of we're experimenting and trying to see what works and what um, doesn't work with manchester it's a project called do it yourself common <laughs> which is again a, a in a very, very uh, diverse and impoverished part of Manchester, North Manchester, uh, we are looking at uh, a particular park which is basically being allowed to deteriorate so that they can sell it off. So there is kind of this wave of people feeling quite abandoned and disillusioned. So so this kind of DIY common is really looking at can we reenact the rights of a common uh, on a park and at the moment one thing we're doing is 
foraging for different things in the park with which we can either do activities, whether it's cooking or weaving or different kind of things that comes from the land and allowing that to build a community of common interest. This whole idea of how publicly we own and claim and have a right over spaces in the city should really be on most of our agendas. So um, there was uh, Torrange Gonsari from Architectural and Art Practice Public Works, which um, uh, who Pearl spoke with. Um, also, um, we're going to play out um, the show with a track from uh, the band, the the punk band um, that we mentioned earlier, uh, Subway Sect. But um, I think that we still have time to plug a bit more information about the film that is um, happening. Friday, so uh, this um, this week. So, Graham, would you like to add a few more information? Yeah. Will there be a Q and A? All these things that we might want to know. Well, um, I haven't uh, I haven't quite decided, but I'll probably be doing. There's going to be a short film showing, and there's going to be some readings. I'm going to read a, a bit of uh, some various stuff, uh, poems, and um, uh, there'll be some surprises. But one thing I just wanted to say was um, Subway Sect, you know, obviously we're a punk era band, but uh, Vic Goddard is so much more than just about punk because he just went into all these different genres like Northern Soul and Swing and uh, everything. So he, he does lots of different kinds of music. And I think, you know, they say that people only remember you for the first thing you did. So he's, I think he's got this thing about, you know, just don't say I'm, I'm you know, like we're a punk band, but... Uh, He does a lot of other stuff. And uh, so that's at the Hackney Picture House on the 10th of July. Um, all details are on uh, eastendfilmfestival.com. And now we're going to hear Ambition by Subway Sec to play us out. Yeah, that's pretty good. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 